How to Win the War for Attention. And I am Keats, and so are you. This is episode 57 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I am Keats, a.k.a. Tom A. Sacker. (laughs) (laughs) Tom, how in the world do we win the war for attention? If there were any topic everybody wants to know the answer to, that's it. And you and I are going to provide some answers or at least... Provide one man's take. Am I right? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that everyone's going to like the answer, but yeah, we'll, we'll give some answers. <laughs> I'm not so sure the answer's contained in the article that we're talking about no, today. No, it's not by, there. No. <laughs> it's by Mark Schaefer. Mark is a well-known uh, blogger. In fact, I want to talk about his uh, CV at the end of this <laughs> segment because I think it's interesting. Chieftain of the blog, grow, strategy, consultant, etc. So anyway, he wrote this article that reprises a, a piece he wrote about three years ago called Content Shock. And this one's called Content Shock Revisited, the content marketing myths and realities. Although from what I can tell, there's really no new information in here other than his frustration that he, he is now um, caught in the, <laughs> the, he has been torpedoed by the Content Shock uh, submarine. And he is splattered yeah, all over. Yeah, he's the personally shocked now. Before it was, he was shocked <laughs> with what he was seeing. <laughs> yes, before I'm a content ma- maestro, and you are going to learn that this is coming. And now, whoops, the waterfall has overwhelmed me. Yes, in fact, he talks about a piece he wrote for the Harvard Business Review that he submitted, and you know, he got a note back saying this is excellent. But not good enough. We get too many good ones now, and yours doesn't rise above the goodness scale to uh, to make the cut. So out he goes. So he kind of uh, expresses his disappointment, his frustration that these folks who had quality better than his have teams of writers <laughs> <laughs> right. that are pooling their resources to come up with this content. So the man is to blame. Um, here's... Uh, where he starts getting into his argument and the update of it. In 2011, if you did a great job with your content audience and engagement, the average brand could expect 26% organic reach on content posted on Facebook. Today, that number is below 1%. Why? There's simply too much stuff. Facebook explains that an average person could be exposed to more than 1,500 stories a day on the platform. That's far too much content, so they cut, cut, cut until it is a manageable news stream content shock. He goes on to say that an organization called TrackMaven has reported on this extensively. In a recent post, they noted that the output of content per brand increased 35% per channel in one year. (laughs) But content engagement decreased 17% in the same time frame. Now, I don't quite know know, (laughs) how he's quantifying this. Does that mean you're plowing more and more stuff at me, but I'm not just paying attention to less and less of it, but paying attention less and less, period? Is that what it means? Right, he, he says, content engagement dropped across all major social networks and plummeted most on Pinterest. They concluded that, quote, for marketing teams, combating this will require more resources and more creativity, which is the most meaningless prescription I've ever heard, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, it was a, a very revealing article. Like I like how Mark wrote that he submitted his quote unquote very best article <laughs> to the Harvard Business <laughs> Review. So, which makes me wonder what I'm reading now. Well, right? no. So, I, so I start saying to myself, okay, well, what, what does this best? What does this best mean? 
Today, mm. it doesn't mean anything. It's funny. No. He wrote, it was the most researched post I had ever delivered to the publication, and it took many hours of work. Mm -hmm. So I look at it and I say, okay, Mark, so what? You see, he thinks he understands how the Harvard Business Review editor weighs value, but, mm -hmm. but he doesn't mm -hmm. because he goes on to write, I'm not giving up, at least for now, but to continue to compete in this crowded content channel, I'll have to spend even more time to develop even better articles. Do you see what's wrong here? Better articles is not the answer. It's mm. the same with products and services. We've had products and service shock for a decade. True. Strategy is not about being better. It's about being different in a way that appeals to the unique desires of your audience. Unfortunately, he doesn't know what the unique desire of that editor is, and he doesn't want to do that hard work, so he's going to make assumptions. That's what everybody's That's interesting. doing. It reminds me of my favorite scene from the old movie Tootsie when Dustin Hoffman is auditioning uh, for the role. Right. And uh, he auditions and the guy says, nah, I think we need someone older. And Dustin says, I can be older. <laughs> we need someone taller. I can be taller. Right. We need someone else. <laughs> yeah, that was a great scene. <laughs> so you're saying essentially that what they're saying to him is, Mark, we need someone else. That's well, yeah. But see, but but he, you know, he went on to write in, in his article that his theories are rational, that they're based on simple economics, supply and demand. Right? Yes. That's not there's nothing rational about today's marketplace. Mm. It's fragmenting faster than people can imagine, and it's much faster than large organizations can handle for sure. So you're either, you either have to rush to aggregate. Or you better rush to differentiate, and you better do it in a way that is connected to what your audience is looking for. And right now, he's not writing things that his audience is looking for. That's what, well, and if, that's what that editor meant by, I have better. <laughs> yeah, better. He didn't mean literally better written, better quality. He meant better fit to what it is I'm looking for. Right, but that's not what Mark implied. He implied no. that if you throw a team of people at it with more research, better quality, all that, that's better. That's not true. Tom, isn't this why PR exists? Because not because PR guys, you know, put out the word to a zillion pub publications all at once, um, but because. PR guys have relationships with these editors. PR guys are in the business of trying to know what these editors are looking for. Mm -hmm. And PR guys are trying to, to satisfy, because PR guys only, only get the call taken by the editor because of their history of satisfying what it is that editor wants, right? Yeah, look, there's a big social game that goes on behind everything that you see out in the marketplace. It's hidden from a lot of us. We just don't see it. But if you've been there in the trenches playing this, you know, this game for attention, you understand that in, in many, many cases, the, the difference between something getting in to an organization, to an article, a component, a part, whatever, and something that doesn't is the relationship someone has with a salesperson. Yes. Right. That's how it works. Yes, relationships. And by the way, none of this piece is about that. 
interestingly, when you, when, cause I was groping for what the solution was and the solution came in the last couple of paragraphs when he said, consider new strategies focused not just on content, but on content ignition. The economic value of content that is not seen and shared is zero. Okay. Content ignition. That was a link. That was a link that takes you to his most recent book, mm-hmm. which includes prescriptions that primarily relate to his, what he's, the, the term he's using there, ignition, really amounts to what you and I would call promotion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which means spend money on social, you know, uh, get people to share your content. Um, th- th- those kinds of SEO, you know, yep. tools designed to. Um, to uh, buy attention, steal attention, borrow attention, grab attention, so that attention can be focused on your content because the quality of your content can't do it on its own. None of that has anything to do with relationships, as you just indicated. Yeah, and and here's the thing. If there's a gatekeeper to the content, then you better form a relationship. That's true. In fact, most of his solution, in fact, all of his solutions, I think, that that are that you have to read the book to buy, to, to experience, um, have nothing to do with gatekeepers and have to do with essentially promoting your content through social channels and SEO and other things to essentially working the, the system. Wow, good luck. Because, you know, there are more and more and more gatekeepers now. I think there's another point, too, that is different from the relationship and in, in understanding the desires of the editor in this case. And uh, there's a, a a book I'm reading right now, which is truly excellent, called The Content Trap, and it's a little bit dense, which is why it only has about 38 reviews compared to the hundred or so. Well, that's that why Mark's you like it as well, Mark. <laughs> yes, because if it's difficult, I I pretend to like it. Right. Um, essentially, The Content Trap argues that um, better content, which is what Mark's talking about is not the answer. It's better connections that are the answer. Oh, interesting. Um, by the way, <laughs> connections, a relationship is by definition a connection. Exactly right. Um, but it talks about the fact that, you know, for example, television, uh, there are con- if, you're, if you're promoting a show, people used to think that the promos for TV were like wasted energy. Why in the world are networks using this promo time to promote their shows? Then they did some research and come to find out that those promotions actually are hugely influential for driving the success of new mm-hmm. shows because those promos connect people with other shows they might like because the promos are placed in similar shows. By the same token, uh, the idea that you have a show, uh, a lead-in, um, lead-in is a connection. You know, the value of a lead-in, the reason why what happens after the Super Bowl is so important is because that Super Bowl is the lead-in. Right. You have connected the audience because even in an era when half of us have DVR players, it turns out when you're on a channel, you have a tendency to stay there. <laughs> I do. <laughs> we all do, still. Um, it's why we see so many sequels on television. So many, uh, just one of the things I almost use as a rant rave was, was, is the return of, um, um, uh, of uh, oh gosh. That's uh, why you the, didn't use it, because you couldn't remember yeah, I, it. Yeah, <laughs> now I've completely forgotten it. But they, you know, they, 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 they bring back shows uh, 10, 20 years, the X-Files thing that came back last mm-hmm. summer is a perfect example. Um, the number of Roman numerals in the movie theater is a perfect example. Now they're going to be a mil- they're going to be Star Wars movies until the day we die and then, uh, going beyond. Um, so again, it's not just the content, it's the connections, the connections to, through familiar brands, the connections through sequels, the connections through, uh, similar audiences, similar tastes, 
you know, all of this is a way to try and understand, as you put it, what people's desires really are, whether they're editors, viewers, or listeners. Right. The last point I want to make on this is I thought it was telling as you go to uh, the postscript, his little bio about who he is at the end of this piece. Uh, and it says he's the chief blogger, et cetera. He wrote these books. And then the next most important sentence, because you would think this would be inverted pyramid, right? The most important stuff at the beginning. Right. He is an acclaimed keynote speaker. And then the last sentence, I think, is the clincher, which is, contact Mark to have him speak to your company event or conference soon. <laughs> uh, that's everywhere. Everybody, Everybody's an expert, a speaker. It's... I, it's he, speaker shock. It is. It's speaker <laughs> excellent. Speaker shock. Listen, you don't think that if you wrote a book called Speaker Shock with a then a, with a prescription of how to cut through all of that and get Every booked speaker as a speaker, would buy it. you would sell hundred thousand books tomorrow. <laughs> I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm going to write podcast <laughs> shock. You write speaker shock. Okay. <laughs> You're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. I Am Keats and So Are You. I Am Keats is the fabulous new book from our uh, esteemed co-host, Tom Asacker. I Am Keats, Escape Your Mind and Free Yourself is the subtitle. Tom, this is an incredible book. I'm so glad you wrote it. Thank you, Mark. Thanks. i got to give you a chance to, to talk about this. First of all, I Am Keats, the first most obvious question. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> I know. Isn't that funny? Well, it, uh, Keats is the, is the romantic poet John Keats. When I was working, when I was writing a screenplay, and I've been doing that for the past few years, I, I just, I don't even know, I randomly came upon this guy, Keats, and started reading some of his philosophies, one in particular called Negative Capability, and, and that's the ability to, to, to not panic and search for solutions when you're uncertain, when there's mysteries. It's just being able to float in that uncertainty and to be able to experience the now in, in all of its presence and make decisions based on that, on what your inner feelings are telling you. And uh, that, that just struck me as, 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 as so powerful, especially in a time like this when no one has really any idea what's going to happen over the next five years. It's impossible to know. Things are moving too quickly and in too many different directions. I think it's worth spending a moment on that because you and I tend to talk about that after the show is over almost every week. I know. And, <laughs> and, and, and we, while not going into any specific details that we're not at liberty to share, I am struck by the fact that there's a lot of people pretending to know what's going on when in fact you sense that they're terrified that they have no clue and that they're kind of hoping they're right. <laughs> no, no, it's, listen, it's absolute. This, it, for, I mean, take this perfect example that we just talked about, this war for attention. Mm -hmm. We have to stop fighting the war. I hear it from people all the time. They, they're saying, well, how should I position myself? Who am I? How do I get people's attention? Talk about an anxiety-producing existence. Yes, And that's the main reason that I wrote this book. Right? It was to test my own assumptions that we have to shift in this chaotic environment from an externally focused mindset because you are not going to figure out the workings of the world. It's impossible. So you mm -hmm. have to shift your attention and your energy to your inner values and desires. And that's what is going to be the way to navigate 
this uncertainty that we're living in. You are not going to wrap your arms around it because it's just overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Because here's, here's, here's you know, the reason why this is so important. It's because the uncertainty is a problem for us, not because uncertainty exists, but because we have expectations, right? Right. We have, we anticipate outcomes. We do things for certain reasons because we want, you know, we want the last chapter. We want the conclusion. We want the happy ending. Right. And you talk to me about what, you know, what your advice is about that and why this book relates to that. Well, look, everything that we create, that we imagine about the future is made up. And typically it is. <laughs> if anybody tells you that they know the future, then they're out of their minds. So it's all made up. And what's happening is people used to be driven by something in them that said, I need to create this because. All right. Mm -hmm. Most of these great brands were created by some crazy people saying, this needs to happen. They didn't do it based on looking out into the future with some ROI or anything like that. But we, we are quickly turning into these fearful creatures who are, who are afraid to move forward, Mark, with our ideas without some kind of supporting evidence that the future is going to be better if we do it. We see, we're Proof. not, we're not in other spirit words, driven we, people any longer. We're data driven people. So in other words, you're saying that we want a guarantee of success in order to take that first step. But listen, not, not only that, we'll look to the world, not, not to ourselves, not to our inner voices, not to our passions and our values. We'll look to the world and, we'll, and the world will tell us what we should do. Every time I hear people say, you should really teach your children to code. I say to myself, are you serious? We're not going to teach children to listen to their inner voices. We're not going to teach them how to think. We're going to teach them to code. What a perfect <laughs> metaphor for what's going on in the world. Do, do you know what I mean? It's perfect. So with that in mind, how should one behave differently in the world? Okay. So... La La Land is nominated for, I don't know, 14 Academy Awards, including... Very large number. Including Best Picture. Mm -hmm. You know it almost never got made? I would assume it would almost never get made. Let's see. What aspect of this would assure its ability to get made? Would it be the fact that it's a uh, musical and features dance uh, segments? <laughs> Part of Would it. it be the fact that it uh, prominently features jazz music? That's exactly right. <laughs> Listen, the Hollywood studios told a director he had better replace the jazz protagonist with a rock musician. <laughs> no, so he didn't listen. So, so am I saying don't listen? Yeah, I am. I'm saying don't let... You know what Leonard Cohen, Cohen he had a, a, a line in one of his songs, and, and the line was, the blizzard of the world has crossed the threshold and it has overturned the order of the soul. Mm -hmm. You see, it was possible for the, for the director of La La Land to allow the blizzard of the world to overturn the order of his soul mm -hmm. and to change that. He did not do it. That's what we've got to start doing. We have to start leading with our values, leading with our desires, and just moving forward and connecting it to people in the world and see what happens. Don't go to the world and have the world tell you 
you know, this is what you should look at. I got a call from a, from a big business book publisher. And they said, uh, you know, they're all on the phone, a bunch of editors. We want you to, you know, to write a book. I said, about what? I mean, they called me. Mm -hmm. And they said, what do you mean about what? Whatever your audience wants. I said, no, I don't write books like that. <laughs> I write books based on what's coming out of me. I don't reach mm -hmm. out to the world and say, what do you want me to write about? That's not how it works. But that's what now, we're turning into. But it, it, doing that... It's risky. Means, <laughs> means it's risky. Doing that, I mean, for example, you use La La Land as an example. Well, La La Land, I could, I could give you a thousand independent films that didn't get made. I had 10,000 that didn't get made. I could give you a thousand that got made and nobody's ever heard of, right? Mm -hmm. So you're, you're saying that just because nobody's ever heard of them doesn't mean they weren't worth conceptualizing and doing. <laughs> of course, that's what I'm saying. And the other thing because I'm telling in you truth, is... Is La La they, Land could have tanked. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, and the other thing I'm telling you is what you do from your inside out could tank. But yes. if you're driven by it, the time that you spend doing it is time well spent. This is what we're missing. We're thinking mm -hmm. that what we have to do is have some kind of crappy life in mm -hmm. order to achieve some life out in the future that's good. Mm -hmm. Do what turns you on now and then in the future, when you look back, you say, wow, I did what turned me on during my life. I had a good life. Because if you do it the other way around, let me do what I really don't like that doesn't inspire me. And then when I get to the future, I'll be happy. I'll tell you what, you get to that future, you still might not have your movie made or your book read. And then you look back and you say, I didn't do what really drove me. So your life sucked twice. <laughs> <laughs> so where does where does judgment come in? Where does the judge come? The to judge success? No, I mean <laughs> you've got you you create a uh, contrast between Keats and Coleridge. Maybe you could talk about that. But if Coleridge is the judge, where does that come in? Okay, so the, so so I use Coleridge, who was another romantic poet, but he was also a critic. He loved to just analyze everything. Right to figure it out, how, how it works and its place in the world. And so is there a place for that in your mind as well? Absolutely, but not during the creation. During the creation, you're Keats, right? When, when you're Jackson Pollock and something in you says to take paint and start swinging it all around like a dance onto a canvas, you don't stop halfway through that and say, I wonder how I'm going to sell this shit. You, you don't do that, right? After you get done, if you want to go take some bankers to dinner that have clients that might buy your stuff, go ahead. But let your spirit create what's in you. Don't confuse it by bringing in the world and trying to figure it all out while you're working on it. So if I were to sum it up, I would say that you don't know what's going to happen either way. Right. So you may as well enjoy the journey. <laughs> yeah, enjoy the journey and invest in your own instincts. You see, people just, aren't doing that. Just one quick uh, illustration of that, and without going into too many details, you know, we track each other's projects pretty closely, and there's one project that I can't talk about yet that's a podcast project that comes out this spring, 
And I remember at the onset of it talking to you about it and saying, wow, well, there's this, I either, you know, do this deal, which may not be incredibly advantageous, or I do this other deal, which is more equitable and will guarantee that the project never happens. Yeah. <laughs> and you said, well, wouldn't you be happier doing the project than not doing the project? Yeah, no, that's what I, in other words, you were bringing the world, you know, the external world into your creative process. Mm-hmm. And what I said was, Mark, do you want to do this? Are you turned on by the thought of it? And you said, yes. Then I said, then just do it. Stop sweating that other stuff right now. Because you can't predict the future. No, you can't. And now, of course, the project's done. It's going to come out. It's going to get some support. It may be uh, valuable. It's certainly going to be something I'm proud of at a minimum, which means I've already succeeded with it, regardless of what the outcome there, is. That, see, that's it. You've, you're successful already. Mm-hmm. That's why this book is so terrific, because it really is encouraging in that way. Even though Seth Godin has a quote on it that says indescribable, <laughs> I think that's because Seth didn't read it. Because um, <laughs> you, you just described it. It's called I Am Keats, Escape Your Mind and Free Yourself by the one and only Tom Asacker, and it's available at Amazon or wherever you buy fine books, I assume, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's time for rants and raves. Tom, you're rant and rave free today, so I'm going to pick up from where you normally leave oh, off. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Mark. I've got a couple. One's kind of <laughs> innocuous, actually, and it relates to what we were talking about other uh, bef- uh, previously with regard to content. There was this piece I saw, TV promos, Missing the Boat in TV Everywhere, and uh, part of it is actually quite correct, I think. He writes, at a time when DVR and subscription video on-demand services have both hit the 50% penetration level and multimedia devices are now in 30% of homes, the idea that, well, let me back up. He complains that a lot of shows on broadcast die undiscovered because they can't connect with their audiences. This is going to relate to what that. we were talking yeah, exactly. about, right? Because the, the, the throw of the network is smaller now. So they promote that stuff on the network. They can't get enough people to know about it. As a result, it doesn't get the ratings, so it dies. So he said, what, but yet the networks are accepting ads from cable networks and others, but not from other broadcast networks. So he says it makes no sense. He actually argues that broadcast networks should take ads, promos, from other broadcast networks because, and this is the thing I have the objection to, um, let's see. It's about high-time networks realize that when a new broadcast series such as Empire or This Is Us becomes a hit, it benefits all broadcast networks. That didn't make any sense to me at all. Because from a consumer standpoint, we don't even know there are these things called broadcast networks. We know channels. We know shows. Mm. We barely know channels. We mostly know shows. So the fact that a network promotes it across other networks versus promoting it on outdoor, on cable, on wherever the heck else. I mean, it just made no sense to me at all. The, this idea that somehow, if only you would take promos from your competitors and they take them from you, broadcast television would be better off. I think that views broadcast TV as some kind of a promotional ghetto unto itself, which I just thought was silly. Am I wrong? <laughs> I, I don't I don't know. I, I mean, think about these podcasts. Um, but again, they're shows. They're not networks. But that's what those. This is what the podcasters do, right? They have each other on all of their shows. Yes, and it works. It does work. <laughs> it does work. <laughs> it, it it works. But to your point, 
they have each other on all of their shows, exactly. right? Exactly. There, there, there's no. Well, no, I'm in the business category, so I can't have the, you know, the the uh, the uh, artist right. on. There, there's not that sense of, you know, silo. This idea that network television is its own animal is bizarre to me. So that's one. The other one, and this one is a little more fun, <laughs> uh, was from uh, the Wall Street Journal. And the title is, Go Ahead, Write a Check for Your Coffee. I've Got All Day. (laughs) So, despite the relentless march of electronic payments and debit cards, Americans still write 17 billion or so, infuriating everyone in line, especially baffled millennials. (laughs) I love this piece because, you know, we've all been in this situation where, you know, the check, although I got to say, as much as the check slows people down, the chip card may slow them down more. (laughs) But that's just my uh, opinion. So Michael Mosier was shopping at a Target in California on Black Friday a few years ago when a shopper ahead of him pulled out a check. In a matter of moments, other shoppers in line behind him scurried to other lines. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Quote, it was like a leper from the leper's colony (laughs) showed up, said Mr. Mosier, who works at a consulting firm tracking the payments industry, which is so ironic. To make matters worse for the impatient shoppers, the cashier and shopper started chatting about the cute kittens printed on the check. (laughs) (laughs) So this rant isn't so much about that, which is an experience we can all relate to, but about one point near the end of the article where it talked about, you know, someone who has a big stake in this category, the people who make checks, remember them? Oh, yeah. Deluxe Corp. The big check printing company has tried to persuade shoppers, this is, this is the media <laughs> angle, okay, persuade shoppers that checks are worth using. The company launched a check writing push in 2010, which admittedly is now seven years ago, but still, that featured a video starring Duncan Steele, the man with checks appeal. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Who writes a check to pay for a 59 cent stick of beef jerky in a convenience store. <laughs> Quote, credit cards are a sucker's game, he says with a wink to the annoyed people waiting in line behind him. (laughs) By the video's end, the woman behind him stops rolling her eyes and leaps into his arms. (laughs) (laughs) Now, obviously, this video was tongue-in-cheek, right? But the fact that they would actually go to the effort of producing a video to persuade millennials that they were all wrong, I don't care whether it's using humor, satire, or not, it's so amazing. A grand total in seven years of 10,000 people have watched this video. <laughs> and I might add, three people have signed up to subscribe to the YouTube channel for these folks, which means that <laughs> even the employees of Deluxe Corp and their agency didn't bother to sign up. <laughs> so there you have it. The right. value of advertising in 2017. That's what happens when people don't want to give others what they desire. They start doing <laughs> things like that. <laughs> That's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. And we hope they desire us as much as you do. Exactly. You can also catch us at art19.com, Radio Inc., Media Village, Google Play, Music, and Net News Check. And I guess... Any day now, Tom. I don't know if you knew this. Uh-oh. On iHeartRadio. Did you know we're on iHeartRadio? I think you said it last episode, didn't you? 
Ah, uh, here I thought it was a surprise. Uh. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker <laughs> and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. Catch up on older episodes and, or we should call them classic episodes, at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, the amazing Mr. Jeff Schmidt, exciting audio for media. You can find him at jeff-schmidt.com. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening.